0: But now looking into Buster Posey. One ball and two strikes. On the ground, Arias from deep third, got him! And that's
1: a perfect game. And the Giants...
2: What is up? It is hot in Buffalo, New York. Season 2, episode 24 of the Sportscasters. It's June 19th, 2012, and it's warm here, huh, Dad? It sure is. It's going to get warmer tomorrow, too, I guess. Uh, Like I said, season 2, episode 24, great show for you today. Alan Shipnuck, first-timer from SI, which is... I think we're running out of people over there that would be first-timers. But he's going to be on to talk U.S. Open with us, look ahead to the British Open, uh, do some golf there. Also, Joe Lemire, basically one year to the day since he was on the last time. Uh, We're going to talk baseball with Joe live from Fenway Park where he's there covering the Marlins and Red Sox game tonight. We're going to talk to Joe about all things baseball. He had a great piece in SI last week about the – About uh, Andrew McCutcheon of the Pirates. Uh, We'll talk to him about that and other things in Major League Baseball. And also, Ed Sherman. I joked with Ed, it doesn't happen often that somebody hears about us before we heard about them. Really? But Ed Sherman is a guy who spent basically 20 years writing for the Chicago Tribune. Okay. Left the Tribune, took a buyout, as those have been happening in the newspaper industry. Sure. Spent three years doing a sports business blog in Chicago. And decided, you know what, I'm going to start my own sports media website slash blog. And he has a thing on there called Roll Call, where he's got a bunch of different websites that are kind of in the similar blogosphere. We made his list? And we made it. Nice. And he sent me a message and said, hey, check out my site. You know, I heard about you guys. Would love to come on, have a chance to promote my new thing. And... Basically, what you're going to get is a really cool 15 minutes on sports media at the end here. So three great interviews for today. I want to mention last week's show, episode 23. I thought it was a really great show. SL Price and I put together an interview. It just it turned out great. It's one of those things where I interviewed him for 15 minutes, and then we recorded like 10 minutes of just the conversation that him and I had about Twitter. Twitter, yeah. It turned out really great, and we've gotten some really great comments about it. Uh, we also had Lee Jenkins on the finals and we had Mike Woods, who was recommended to us by Tim Graham on all that mess from boxing a couple weeks ago. You can find that on our website, www.sports-casters.com com. you can find it on Stitcher and also iTunes. Don, did you hear that iTunes, or er, Apple, in iOS 6 might have a standalone podcast app? Okay. So that would be interesting. A or yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that ...affects what we do, if at all, and maybe more importantly, if it affects how the listeners listen. Sure. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. But uh, we have a lot to do today. Like I said, Alan Shipnuck's on the show, Joe Lemire, Ed Sherman. We're going to update the book club. We're also going to do version 2.0 of our round one fantasy football mock draft. See how things have changed here as teams kind of enter minicamp and then get ready to basically take the rest of the summer off up until training camps open. And also, we're going to do a kind of special version of Pick 4 that's going to focus on the NHL awards. Before we can get to any of that, we have to do three things.
1: Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns
2: on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback.
0: (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. We just become best friends. Yep. Now let's move on to other business.
3: You heard off the top that Matt Cain made history for two reasons. One,
2: he became the freaking perfect game
3: first giant to throw a perfect game, Uh, the twenty-second player all time to throw a perfect game, and two. He became the first one of our winning pitchers, I believe, ever to throw a perfect game yeah. since we've been doing this. So, uh, we'll pat More that, on that later. A little pat on ourselves on yeah. the back there. Yeah, just unbelievable. Uh, he's been a stud this year and most recently the perfect game. And it's been a season of really, really good pitching. I believe off the air we were just talking, there's been two perfect games already. Yep, and three no-hitters. Three no-hitters uh, and this is kind of overshadowing what R. A. Dickey has done with Two the Mets, one-hitters. back-to-back one-hitters. That might even be more impressive than a no-hitter. Maybe. I don't know. It's arguable, I guess. And least.
2: really cool what I'm checking out is our buddy John Wertheim has something on Dickie on SI.com today. So that's nice. definitely worth checking out.
3: Yeah, like you said, uh, the guy that covered
2: Lynn Sanity, the author. Pablo Estore. Pablo Estore should be all over this. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is Lynn Sanity of the summer here. This is uh, Dick Sanity. <laughs> uh, you know... Uh, our buddy Pusnansky wrote a really great piece after the Kane no hitter, kind of, just as only he can describe it. What has happened in the last couple of years with the increase? I mean, there was a fifty-year stretch in baseball where there was like three perfect games, right? And one thing he cited is, well, there's a lot more games now. You know, as the okay. league has went from fifteen teams to twenty-five to right. you know thirty or whatever. There's more pitchers, and also there's thinner rosters, and and the lineups aren't as powerful, you know. There isn't the twenty-seven Yankees anymore. Or things like that.
3: Does he talk about? I mean, the casual fan might point to steroids.
2: Yeah, then that's an obvious. Yeah, that's an obvious thing. And, and I mean, I don't know that steroids being taken out leads to a perfect game, but it, no. it does lead to, I guess, pitchers less Mark McGuire's and Sammy right Sosa's pitchers and taking the lead. And I think it's great. You know, look at There's times where say a guy has three home runs. And so ESPN cuts to his fourth at bat, right? Because you sure. want to see if it's his fourth. But nothing is like cutting to a game for that seventh, eighth, and ninth inning when a guy is working Gotta on no a perfect, hitter, gamer, perfect game or no hitter. Right. I mean, it's 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 something in what it always ends up being a long season. It's something that just makes each night, I guess, cool. And a shout out to my cousin-in-law, I guess, Tammy's cousin's husband. He works for New Era and was in San Francisco for the golf. And was there for the perfect game. What, a, what? Oh, was he really? Yeah, what a lucky thing that is. Is that so. who got me the
3: Sabres hat you gave me? He did. A couple of weeks ago? Yeah. Is that, is that payola? I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think,
2: I think you could call it that. <laughs> uh, but, wow. You know, so every night it seems like it's in play. You know, so very sure. cool. Good for baseball. It's been a great baseball season. I, I can't remember one as good as this. All right, my first thing today. Uh We'll talk more about this, I'm sure, on the football show, but I wanted to mention one of the great running backs, really, of all time. Well, Danian Tomlinson retired last week. And I guess before I go any further, Don, I want to ask you, do you think what I just said is hyperbole? That he's one of the greatest ever?
3: No. No, I don't think so. I think uh, he maybe took over what maybe maybe a guy like Marshall Falk started, that all-around He's the all-purpose back weapon, right. Yeah.
2: And uh, Peter King did a really good job in his Monday morning quarterback kind of talking about that exact thing. He's, in his opinion, there's three clear best all-purpose backs in the last 30 years. Marcus Allen, Marshall Falk, oh, Marcus, and LaDainian yeah. Tom, Tomlinson. He said statistically right away, Tomlinson and Falk do Trump Allen. So it's basically a comparison between Falk and, Tom- and Tomlinson. And let me give you some numbers. These are from, right from Peter King's Monday morning quarterback. He focused on their seven best seasons. Okay. Falk played 108 games, Tomlinson 111. Falk had 13,874 total yards, Tomlinson had 14,025. Wow. Uh, Falk averaged 128.4 yards per game, Tomlinson averaged 126.3. Average yards per season Falk averaged 1982, Tomlinson added 2003. Uh, five point six seven yards a touch for Falk. Four point nine seven for Tomlinson. TDs, hundred and three TDs for Falk. One twenty nine for Tomlinson. Wow! And great records: fifty eight and fifty for Falk. Sixty two and forty nine. Maybe the tiebreaker. If Falk has a ring.
3: Yeah, yeah, they be they be tough to to pick
2: apart. Uh, top five all-purpose backs of the last thirty years, not including Walter Walter Payton. Again, this is from Kings. Uh, Monday Morning Quarterback column. He has Falk, Tomlinson, Thurman Thomas, Darren Sproles, Marcus Allen. Interesting. But congratulations to LT on a great career, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it on our podcast at www.footballnation.com.
3: Sure. Uh, My second thing this week, Roger Clemens, uh, good day for him, I suppose. He's found not guilty on all six counts of perjury. This has been going on for a while. Uh, I don't know what this was going to do for him or – how it was going to hurt him? If he, I mean, if he was found guilty, then he'd obviously be in
2: some legal trouble. He potentially faced jail, right? right. But
3: as far as his legacy is concerned, I think it's damaged anyway. Uh, you look at guys that are involved in this whole discussion, like Mark McGuire. He's still not in the Hall of Fame. Sammy Sosa, not in the Hall of Fame. I think they'd both be up for it too.
2: Yeah, I, I think what I think public opinion on this, this uh, probably doesn't change anything. Yeah that 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 jury was in years ago. You know, when it comes to Clemens. So
3: yeah, I mean, he's excited to to miss jail time and yeah, sure. That that's about all this story means. I mean, it's a big story. It's obviously newsworthy, but to me, I guess I'm in that court of public opinion and I've already decided against him years ago.
2: So. And I think I think the government needs to take a step back here. Stop wasting time and money going after baseball players.
3: But I don't understand about. Well, I mean, I guess he wasn't necessarily wasn't him. Because tr- perjury is an odd thing because isn't that just lying in court? It like, doesn't isn't everyone that what who everybody loses? Right. <laughs> uh, but I guess he wasn't specifically. Uh, he volunteered information that maybe was false. I, I don't know. Jeff
2: Perlman, who's a friend of ours, sure, uh, was on the Jim Rome Show today, by the way. Plug for Jeff. Uh, he wrote a book about Clemens. It's one that we talked about when he was on before. So here's what I would say is Prolman knows a lot more about this than me. Sure, oh yeah. He tweeted this after the announcement of the verdict. Don't be confused though, he won't go to jail. Ry- Roger Clemens is a liar and a fraud.
3: Yeah, and he's well, he doesn't seem go. overly likable. He had the problems with the the country singer a uh, few right. years back. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, congratulations Roger Clemens,
2: I guess. You don't have to go to jail, but like uh Perlman said you're still a liar and a fraud and I think that just about anyone would probably say that. Yeah. All right. I watched a really cool thing last week, Thursday. I think we talked about it briefly on the last show. We were talking about whether or not you had NBA TV. And the reason we were wondering is because they had a great documentary. Oh, on yeah, called. Yeah. Uh, it was, I think, just called The Dream, Dream Team. Team. Uh, and it was outstanding. They had two really, really cool things that I, that made me love it. One thing they had was a some video of a scrimmage that was played between the dream team and a college player dream team at the time that had Bobby Hurley, Chris Webber, didn't have Leitner cuz he was on the regular dream team. Okay. And they actually beat the Dream Team. Basically, the only loss that those guys had as a team is this
3: common knowledge. Like, no, this is okay. kind
2: of a, a re- revelation. I was going to say the doc. I
3: kind of felt like I watched more basketball then than now, and yeah, I had never heard this.
2: This wasn't like a televised. It was a scrimmage in a gym, right? Right. You know, and it was before they went away to Buenos Aires where they had a training camp. And Coach K, who was the assistant coach, and is the coach of I guess this next installment of the Dream Team, if you call right, it that, yeah. still. Uh, Claims that Chuck Daly, who was the coach, threw it. That, you know, he didn't play Jordan much, that he wanted them to lose, and it was a wake up call, etc. Playing but some mind games. It, but it's really cool footage. And then the next day they, they played again, and Jordan played a lot, and they pounded him. <laughs> okay. Another really cool thing they had is footage of John Stockton kind of roaming around Barcelona with his family, holding a, a camera, and going up to Americans in the street and basically talking to them about the Dream Team. Stockton says, he's like, it's perfect for me. I'm a little point guard. It's like, people don't look at me and say, basketball player. You know, I'm 6'2", 185 pounds. And he's going up to people who have Dream Team shirts on and talking (laughs) to them. So you really like the Dream Team, huh? And um, they're like, yeah. And then they don't even realize that he's on the team. So it's a great, great documentary. You know that I love documentaries in general. And I especially love sports ones. And NBA TV, I don't know if they're known for anything else, but. They're known for this, and, and they'll replay it a, a bunch of times between now and then. And we'll talk more, but finally today, our copy of Jack McCollum's Dream Team book. Oh, nice. And Jack is in the in the documentary. He does a great job. This is going to be our book club book of the month for July. We'll talk more about that in the book club. But I wanted to mention I watched the Dream Team documentary. It was great, and you should find out if you have NBA TV. And if you do, find out when to re-earn this thing and check it out.
3: All right, my third thing this week, we want to make sure we touch at some point on the NBA Finals, make sure that we haven't uh, neglected them in any way. Good so far. Good basketball. It looks like this is going to be LeBron's year. It Uh, does. We've kind of been saying that since, I guess, the beginning of the playoffs, and he really took over the last two games, and both have been heat wins. I kind of, to pat myself on the back a little bit from pick four, kind of called this. I, I thought it would be tight. I thought Oklahoma would win at home, and then they would, heat would split. And I specifically said that, that the Heat would win Game Three, but it's it's been a tight series uh, between two great teams. I expect the Heat to win it. Uh, I, I don't know. Do you do you think it's over? Like, do you think Oklahoma? No, I don't think it's over. You think they're gonna give them a fight still?
2: I think. First of all, I thought I think it's really high level basketball. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think we're seeing. I, I think we're seeing the two best teams taking swings at each other here. Yeah,
3: but and you
2: don't know can't always say that about any what sports I ha- playoffs. And I, I thought about what Lee told us last week, and what we haven't seen. He said that of the ten best players, like eight the of them or seven of them would them, yeah. be on the Thunder. We haven't seen that yet. What we've seen is the three best players on the Heat take over the series, especially late in the games. Yeah, you know. To end Game Three, uh, LeBron and Wade and Bosch had like the last twenty points or something for their team. Right. We haven't seen the Thunder get anything from Harden yet, you know. So I think he's going to need to play better. And we just haven't seen the depth of the Thunder take over. Actually, we've seen the opposite. When Durant and Durant and um, Westbrook were on the bench in the third quarter on Sunday, the Heat took over the game.
3: I mean, I think I think it's an probably an overstatement, but it goes without saying that Oklahoma City
2: has to win tonight, though. Probably, yeah, I, yes, they do. I, I don't think that even Le- with LeBron the, and Wade aren't going to lose three in a row. And I don't think you want to give them the chance to win it at, at home. home. Right. You don't want you don't even want that possibility to exist. But yeah, I, I think look at they're they're in trouble, but they're not in they're not dead until right. They you lose win tonight, tonight, and it's right. even, yeah. So, But it's been exciting. It's been great basketball. And uh, I think if you're a fan of just basketball in general, you'd love to see the Thunder win tonight because that kind of guarantees at least a six-game yeah. series. And uh, why wouldn't you want that? Because it's been, been great so far. Uh, something else that's been great so far, my third thing today, is the Euro 2012. Uh, as we kind of went on the air, the – what do they call it? What do they call it? The preliminaries, I guess, are over. The round robins. Yeah, right? the round robins. Um, England defeated the Ukraine, which means that Ukraine and Poland, the coast countries, are out. Uh, England won Group D, and France finished second. What that means is England avoids Spain, who won Group C, Yep, and will play Italy in what will be a really great matchup of classic soccer powers, England and Italy. And France will play Spain, which will be another really great, great uh, thing. What's been cool about this tournament is... I love what they've done instead of they they staggered the two games each day a group has their two games right games one and two one played at like twelve thirty, one one played at 2:30 but for the third game they played simultaneously so that no squad in the start of the game was kind of their fate. right so it's been made for really great drama like for example the last couple of days with like 70 minutes gone any three of the four teams could have been the two that advanced right right i think the shock of the tournament so far is the netherlands went oh and three and are out that was uh, our buddy uh richard deitch's pick to win the tournament wow yeah so the netherlands didn't qualify they're out so basically this is where we're at with the tournament there's eight teams left uh quarterfinals i think they take one day off and then they'll um and then they'll they'll start the quarterfinals and. Uh, Uh, The Czech Republic, um, Portugal, England, France, Spain, Italy, and two more teams. The Group B teams are going to uh, go on. And let me get those Group B teams. Have you seen any of this? I haven't, no. Haven't seen I've seen
3: some highlights. But other than that, no. I saw a pretty cool highlight on YouTube of, uh, I believe it was the Ireland team. Uh, They were getting beaten pretty bad in the game that they were gonna lose and actually they were gonna be eliminated in but uh, their fans saying like what I think is their national anthem really loudly like as a show of support. So that's it's cool to see when you soccer sometimes has the uh hooligan stereotype. When you see fans just supporting their teams even in a loss, it was really really cool video.
2: And Greece and Germany are the other two Greece and Germany. Okay. Uh, and one thing I heard it seems like the two best teams in the tournament are Germany and Spain and the way everything broke down There is a chance that they'd play in the final. Nice. So, Euro 2012, 2012. great soccer if that's what you're into. All right, that's it for three things today. Uh, We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Alan Shipnick. We're going to talk some golf with him. Don't forget, Joel Lemire is on the program and also Ed Sherman. So, let's take a break, and uh, we'll be right back with Alan Shipnick from Sports Illustrated, Illustrated sportsillustrated.com, and (laughs) golf.com. Our next guest graduated from UCLA in 1996 and became one of the youngest staff members in the history of Sports Illustrated. His first cover story for SI was published when he was still an intern. Today he's a senior writer and the author of four books. His latest book in 2011 is a novel he co-authored with Michael Bamberger called The Swinger. At SI he covers mostly golf and Moonlights is a columnist for Golf.com. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscasters, welcome to the very talented Alan Shipnick. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
2: Oh, really excited to have you on. Um, now, I know you're on the West Coast, but for a guy who's on the East Coast, it was really interesting to be watching his Father's Day golf, you know, right through the end of an NBA Finals game, basically. Um, it, was, it was pretty cool. It was, it was an interesting weekend with, with the golf being later, and obviously we want to start with the U.S. Open. And I guess here's here's the first thing I want to ask because I'm just curious what your opinion is. The U.S. Open is the interesting tournament where we get to watch these guys who we admire kind of struggle like we do on the course. As a you know, it's always it's a low number. This time it was it was over par winning. Is that how you like your golf, or do you prefer the tournaments where the winner is you know plus ten plus 11, or minus ten minus eleven? What's kind of your happy zone for a golf tournament?
0: Well, for the U.S. Open, I like punishment. I like carnage. Uh, you know, the whole point of tournaments to push the players to the, the breaking point, uh, mentally, emotionally, maybe physically, um, that's just the personality of the tournament. And, you know, it's the most exacting, most difficult course they play all year. That's by design. And, you know, it's, it's a very thorough examination of, of all parts of a player's game and their ability to... Manage their emotions and and to think under pressure, and uh, it's great. That's what the Open's all about. I I don't want that. The Masters, you know, the Masters, you want back nine birdies and eagles and momentum changes, and, uh, you know, that's more of an excitement. the British Open, it's shot making and creativity and, um, you know, navigating the elements and and the quirks of Lynx land. But the U.S. Open is. Is a survival test. It's it's uh, it's a war of attrition, and that's what makes it so great and compelling. And you know, I I thought uh, Olympic was was a very stern test, and uh, you know, the finish was quite exciting, and it really came down to who could make the fewest mistakes at the end, and that's kind of classic open golf.
2: Let's kind of start with Furyk. It seemed like right through, I almost want to say up to sixteen on Sunday, he you felt like he was going to be the winner of the tournament. And then it all fell apart for him did you did, did you did you kind of feel bad for Furek, and and w- at what point did you kind of get the sense that it just wasn't going to happen?
0: yeah, it was interesting. I mean Jim Furick you would think would have won about a half dozen u s opens by now. He hits the ball so straight he's celebrated as such a tough competitor, and you know his his strength seemed to match up perfectly with his golf tournament and you know course management and making clutch putts when he needs them and um just toughness, but he really, he let this one get away just like he did, um, you know, Wingfoot in, in 06 and Oakmont in 07. I mean, he just, he's had trouble finishing at the Open and it's, it's really gonna, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an incomplete part of his resume. You know, if if he'd won this golf tournament, he'd probably punch his ticket to the Hall of Fame. He has 16 victories. he He's done a bunch of Ryder Cup teams. You know, he has the one open in 03, but He's kind of a borderline candidate. If he would picked this one off, you could pretty much have penciled him in. So it was a big moment in his career. And, you know, the guy's 42. You have to wonder how many chances he's going to have. And I think all this stuff affected him on some level. He, he knew how important this tournament was. And um, that shot he hit on 16, you know, snap hooked it into the trees. That was his worst swing of the week by far. And that's just pressure. You know, that's, that's the, the cumulative toll of, you know, 70 holes of, of open golf, and uh, even then, you know, he still could have. He could have birdied 17. He hit a terrible second shot there. Um, 18. He's in the fairway. He just has a little wedge. I mean, he just made three holes in a row. He made just brutal mistakes, and that's what happens at the U.S. Open. Guys just get worn down, and um, it's it's that that's what makes it so compelling. He just, you could see, he had nothing left. He was just trying to hold it together, and he he couldn't do it. So. It was On one hand, it was a surprise because he played so beautifully to that point, but you know Furyk has a history of doing this now, and, and you have to wonder if he's ever going to be able to close the deal at, at another major.
2: You know, it's interesting when you look at the final leaderboard for this U.S. Open, you see names like Westwood and Ells and Patrick Harrington and Furyk, who we talked about, and Graham McDowell, who's won before. And then the winner is Webb Simpson, the guy who, if you look at the sheet, a casual fan, knows the least about. Where, where did Webb Simpson come from?
0: Well, he, you know, he really emerged last year for the first time as a world-class player. He he was a guy who had, had a good college career. He, he was a, a Walker Cup hero and then got out on the on the PGA Tour and, and struggled to find himself. which, you know happens a lot. Um but beginning of 2011 he made he made some changes, he, a new caddy who's a uh, Paul Tasori, you know, looped for Vijay Singh, who's also kind of his de facto swing coach and made this big commitment to getting in better physical shape, and the pieces just kind of, you know, fell in place, and he easily could have, I mean, he won twice last year, his first two victories, and he went down to the wire at four others, he really, he almost had a monster year, as it was, you know, he he wound up in the top ten of, of the world ranking and really elevated himself, and this year he's played okay, he's had, you know, he's had some good finishes, he hadn't won, but uh, there was a sense that he was underachieving a little bit, and I think he was pressing to kind of build on that breakthrough of last season but he's, he's a classic open player I mean he hits it very straight he's very precise with his irons he actually led the the tour last year in the all-around stat which takes into account the various statistical categories you know green and regulation and driving accuracy and that stuff so the guy has a lot of game uh, he's only 26 years old so you uh, may have maybe you'd feel like oh, he, was, he wasn't quite ready but he just, he just got hot on Sunday I mean he was by far, the hottest player on the course, you know he made four berries and five holes in the middle of the round to right. to put himself in the picture and then he he closed it out with eight straight pars. you know everyone else was making mistakes and he just he just got it done so it was it was a great performance he really he played the best golf on the weekend he deserved to win and uh un, unlike Zurick or mcdowell or or els or harrington i mean he he really he finished off his round very well and so it was this impressive performance. I, this is not. This is not a fluke. I mean, this is a guy is going to contend a lot of majors going forward.
2: You know, I I, th- I think I have these stats right. I, I'm going to be close anyway. I think it's 15 majors, 15 different winners, and the last eight are first-time winners. Right? It's it's something real. Yeah. Clo- it's real close to that.
0: Yeah. The last nine, exactly.
2: Right. Uh, w- what's going on? Uh, is it?
0: Well, we're, I mean, we're in the post-Tiger era. You know, is it? It was. <sighs> For a long, you know, Tiger, Phil, and VJ were winning half the majors for a while, and uh, all those guys are. Uh, you know, VJ certainly. A twilight of his career, you have to wonder about Mickelson the way he's been playing this year. Tiger has a lot of different issues, so um, there's there's just this new. It's the passing of the torch. There's so this new generation of players. There's a lot of guys in their twenties who, this sort of power vacuum at the top, they've really elevated their careers, and um, you know they. have Tiger has certainly provided a blueprint, and a lot of these guys are following it through fitness, through just um, the dedication they're putting into their games. And you, you don't see too many underachievers on tour anymore. It's, guys are really pushing themselves hard. I mean, like look at Luke Donald; he's getting every ounce out of that he can out of out of his natural ability. And um, there's sort of there's not a lot of guys coasting anymore because if you do that, you're on the Nationwide Tour. It's just the level of play from top to bottom has been raised dramatically, and uh, more of the top Europeans are playing over here. And the golf, the game has become more international in the last couple of decades. Now, now you've seen Wei Yangs and um, uh, others come from parts of the world that weren't known for their golf, and so it's just there's, there's a lot of factors that are all playing out all at once. And there's just a lot of really good players who are ready to win big time tournaments. And in the absence of a dominant uh, force. They're getting their chances And, and they're, they're capitalizing
2: You know if I would have asked you this next question Exactly one year ago The answer would have absolutely been Roy McIlroy But the question would be Of all these guys Who have won first time majors and, and, and improved Their play on, on tour Is there one that can emerge And I'm not saying be the next Tiger Woods But be mm-hmm. the next guy Who can run off five majors in 10 years or something like that, is it still is it still McElroy, or is there kind of a new guy or two that you would put in the lead as far as kind of emerging from this group of nine first-time winners or 15 of the last 15 to uh, put some kind of sub- sustainable run together?
0: Yeah, it, it's still McElroy. I mean, he um, obviously played poorly at Olympic, and he did it at Augusta as well, so it's it's been a down year based on the expectations of his, his record Open victory. Um, he there's there's very little wrong with his his game. He's just his life has changed so dramatically. He went from a, a good player who was known only to diehard golf fans to um, you know international superstar, and there's been a lot of turbulence that that comes with that. You know he's. He changed management companies. Decided to move to the U.S. He picked up a famous girlfriend. Uh, he's trying to figure. He's trying to figure out how to balance all these things. And he, even as he struggled, he still, you know, he got to number one this year. He had he had a great victory at the Honda, and he almost won the match play, and he almost won in Memphis the week before the Open. I mean, when when he can just get on the golf course, his talent is such that he's dangerous every time. But he's having, you know. Focus, focusing his energies and, you know, he's having scheduling dilemmas and it doesn't look like he's always ready to play now, which, which is a problem. I mean, I, I do think that he's a smart kid. He has good people around him. I, I think he'll figure it out and he's still long-term the guy, but we're also starting to learn more about some of his, his weaknesses. You know, congressional was the perfect setup. Rory likes, uh, he likes to draw the ball. You know that that course demanded a lot of draws off the tee, whereas Olympic, you know, favored the fade. That hurts him. And, you know, softer setups are better for him. Um, just with his skill set, so I think there's some majors where it's not going to be a good fit. He, he's still learning to adapt his game to the conditions. But if you get, you know, the PGA Championship, he gets the right course there. He's dangerous. Certain U.S. Open setups, definitely at the Masters. So. He's still a guy who like you know could easily win 8 or 10 majors in his career you know that puts you uh, among the 10 best players ever right. but he, he has to go out and do it you know he, he's got to he needs to to learn to control everything that goes into being a pro golfer a little better and I do think he'll figure it out I mean he's only he's only 23 but it it has been a disappointing stretch and expectations are very high for Rory and I think they're they're starting to be tempered a little bit which isn't a bad thing I mean it gives him a chance to um kind of catch his breath a little bit
2: Sportscasters are here talking golf with Alan Shipnuck from uh, Sports Illustrated. You can find him on Twitter at Alan, S-H-I-P-N-U-C-K. Uh, I guess we got to do this. Tiger Woods, everyone wanted to give him the Open kind of on Thursday. I think that there's still some hopefulness there that this guy is going to get back and give us, whether it's six months or one more year of what he was before he backed his car into a pole on Thanksgiving one year. Um... Where do you see Tiger in terms of his game today and kind of what do you expect from him in the future?
0: Yeah, this was a big setback. I mean, Tiger played so beautifully at the the Memorial two weeks before the Open, and it wasn't just that he won the tournament, it was how he did it. It was sort of vintage magic, you know, pulling it out in the last few holes and hitting that impossible flop shot that, that he made for birdie on the 70th hole, and, you know, that, he was he was back to doing things only he could do and his you know he, he brought that same ball striking into the open you know first two rounds were just uh, as good as you can control your golf ball he really didn't make any putts and he was still leading the open so it, it just seemed like you know Tiger's a different player he's obviously a different person he's certainly not putting like he did that was the putter was a difference maker for him for 12 years i mean nobody's ever putted like he did so uh for so long and um as you get into your mid to late thirties, the putt stop falling. I mean, it happened for Watson, it happened for Hogan, it happens to a lot of guys. So, the it, it sort of this transition where it seems like Tiger may be on the verge of dominating with his ball striking, but it completely left him on the weekend. And I don't think that's technical so much as mental. I mean, the guy just he's he's has a lot of scar tissue now, and um, he's kind of like a lot of other very talented golfers when when he gets going he he he's dangerous and he can win, which he's done twice this year. But when the pressure's higher at the majors, uh when when the uh you know, the doubt starts creeping in. And we saw it at Augusta when he played poorly, we saw it on the weekend at Olympics. So I think the the simplest way to put it is Tiger's now just another very good golfer and he's gonna win tournaments. He may win another major. He may win two more. Who knows? But um the things that separated him was not only the putter, but also just he had the best head in the game. Just the belief, the um, the confidence, the focus. And a lot of that's been stripped away, you know, in the, the scandal and its aftermath. So um, now we don't know what to expect. It's, he, it used to be when you know the reason Tiger's won all his majors with you know he had the 54-hole lead and all that. It was when he was playing well, he would just keep going, and he wouldn't he. He wouldn't lose his form in the middle of a tournament. When he turned up, he had his A game, he won. That was it. And now he's more day-to-day. It's like, um, you know, he can, he can play beautifully one day and horribly the next. So that makes him like every other guy on tour. And uh, so the, the element of certainty is now gone. You know, we, we're not going to know what to expect from Tiger, even when he's playing well. It makes it kind of more interesting and exciting, but it's, it's certainly, a, uh, certainly a big change from where he was. So
2: it sounds to me like you think uh, Jack's, Record for most majors is safe,
0: then. Yeah, I, I do at this point. I mean, because then the the other factor with is his health. Uh, I mean, Tiger's just one more injury away from you know his career being forever altered. So he needs to stay healthy. That that's a question mark. And now he's just he's just shown that he's vulnerable under pressure. And uh... you know, five majors. That, that's what Byron Nelson won his whole career. That's what Seve Ballesteros won in his whole career. I mean, these are some of the most talented guys ever. And Tiger needs five more you know, on the downside of his career, where he's, uh, he's there's a lot of question marks. So it's I'd be surprised if he gets there. I mean, he's still Tiger Woods. You never know, but um, I, I don't see it happening.
2: Two more quick things. You know, as we approach the British Open, which is the next. Uh, major here about a month away. What what will you be wondering? What what kind of things are you going to be going uh, to the British Open to find out?
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's been, we're in this era of parody. So, as we are talking about before, the question is, can someone really emerge? Whether it's Rory, maybe it's Webb, you know. I don't know if it's Webb Simpson at the British Open. He may not even play it because his wife's going kind to of have a baby around then. But, right. Um, you know, Dustin Johnson's a guy with as much talent as anybody and had a big win a few weeks ago. Uh, it's not really the best golf course for him, Royal in St. Anne's. But, you know, we, we need someone to go on a run here and help clarify the storylines in golf. It, and maybe it's Ricky Fowler finally gets his first one. It's just, um, you know, we all know the majors really help separate the best players. And it, it, winning tour events is important and building resume and getting – Getting that that sort of killer instinct is very valuable, but ultimately a guy is judged by what they do in the majors. And so, everyone that comes is, is a crucial opportunity. So I'm I'll be curious to see if you know let Luke Donald can pick off his first one. Lee Wester. There's all these guys who just are hungering uh, to win one, and, and they really need it for their career. So uh, hopefully, hopefully we it'll be a top player will win win the Open and or the PGA, and we, we can we can start separating the men from the boys.
2: All right, last quick thing. I'm a big fan of Oklahoma athletics, especially football and basketball, obviously. But, you know, years ago, uh, Todd Hamilton won a major, and I kind of knew that that was just uh, – it was a British Open, I think, and that was just a guy who was in the right p- place at the right time. I didn't expect him to run off 10 more. But there was a, you know a golfer named Anthony Kim who I thought might be – uh, a star on this tour and currently he ranks 214th and he's made like $33,000 this year. What is in the world has happened to Anthony Kim?
0: Well, he's had a lot of injuries and um, he tried to play through them which portion uh, to kind of changed his swing and put a lot of pressure on other parts of his body. You know, it's just a classic example. When you're hurt, you need to shut it down and get healthy. And um, Now he's mostly healthy Already was, and he couldn't find his swing, and then he started to find his swing, and then he got hurt again. So he's just a mess. I mean, he's finally, finally taken, you know, four or five months off, and um, you know, I mean, I like, I like AK. I did a big story on him a few years ago, and I, I think he's basically a sweet kid and and a good person. But he's he's also he was sort of like Rory. He's been easily seduced by being a star, and and you know having having money and celebrity and all the distractions that come with that a lot of them wearing short skirts and it it's just he's he's clearly lost his focus and um so it's he he's one of those guys that he could be great but he's he's going to have to make a lot of changes in how he how he goes about being a pro golfer to get there he's got he's got to stay healthy now he needs to find his swing there's just there's just a lot of there's a lot of ifs with him. I'd like to see him make it back. When there was a time when we thought he was going to be the best young American, he has been totally passed by. So I still believe in his talent, but he has a long way to go to to get back to where he was.
2: Alan, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it.
0: You got it. Anytime. Thank, thank you. you.
2: All right, we have to thank Alan Shipnuck for making his debut on the podcast today. Really appreciate that. Book Club Book of the Month update. All right, let's start with June because it's June. Book Club Book of the Month for June is The Last Natural, Bryce Harper's Big Gamble in Sin City, and The Greatest Amateur Season Ever It's by Rob Mish, which Rob, with, rhymes with Rob Wish. Wish. Right. Uh, Rob is a great guy. He's one of the nicer authors that we've dealt with was nice enough to send us an autographed copy for ourselves. I, I think I mentioned this last week. And an autograph copy to give away. Rob should be on the podcast next week. So if you have any questions for Rob about the book, about Bryce Harper, or about Las Vegas sports scene, which is one he's been covering for years, uh, you can email that to us at sportscasters at gmail.com. Again, the book is The Last Natural. Bryce Harper's big gamble in Sin City in the greatest amateur season ever. And Don, you know what? Last week I was kicking myself that I didn't take the 90-minute drive up to Toronto and see this kid play. And I could have killed two birds with the stone because Strasburg pitched one day too. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And there's, there's not a lot of people who make me think, man, I should have went to Toronto for that baseball game in June or whatever. But Topic for a different time,
3: but uh, are they really going to shut Strasburg down? I doubt it. At first like a 160-inning count or something this year. Or something he says he hopes
2: like – I guess Harrington asked him that, and he kind of said he hopes it all just kind of goes away. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, long-term versus short-term, right? Right. Yep. I guess that's the debate. I just – I wonder if he really needs to be shut down or if it's just an example of being overly cautious. And haven't we seen this not work before, like with the Java rules? I mean, that was a bust, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, uh, one last other thing for the book club today, and and definitely buy and read Rob's book. I'm enjoying it uh, quite a bit, and he did a great job with it. And he had incredible access. I mean, this guy was on the bench the whole season, which doesn't happen often. But the other book I wanted to mention, mostly because I mentioned three things about the documentary, and the book actually came in the mail today finally, Uh, but our book club book of the month for July – is going to be Dream Team, How Michael, Magic, Larry, and Charles and the Greatest Team of All Time Conquered the World and Changed the Game of Basketball Forever. This is a book about Hall of Famers by a Hall of Famer, Jack McCollum, one of the great sports writers of all time. Jack's going to join us on July 10th, which is essentially, what, two podcasts from now because we're going to take July four, 3rd four, off. Right, yeah. Um, so... It'll be different in the sense that this book doesn't come out till july tenth, so you won't be able to read it before we have Jack on. But if you have a question about the dream team, you probably will be able to ask it before you read the book. So sure. if you have anything for Jack, get get it to us again, the sportscasters at gmail dot com. But we're really looking forward to that. And if you want to prep yourself for the book a bit, obviously the documentary is a great way to do it. But one last time, the book club book of the month for June. Bryce Harper's Big Gamble and Sin City in the greatest amateur season ever, The Last Natural by Rob Mish. Check it out Barnes and Noble, iBooks, The Nook, yeah, all Kindle, that all that stuff. Let's take a break. We're going to come back with Joe Lemire from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. Hi. Our next guest was born in Richmond, Virginia, spent his childhood in Lowell, Massachusetts before returning to the South for college, where he graduated from the University of Virginia. Today he's a writer for Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com, where he covers Major League Baseball. He's making his third appearance on the podcast today, a warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Joe Lemire. What's up, Joe? Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to have you on. Uh, You're at Fenway Park, I think, just like last time you were on, right?
4: Yeah, exactly right, um, up here for, uh, for a
2: game of Red Sox tonight. All right, well, like I just told you off air, I was just kind of looking looking back and updating your, your, uh, your profile and things like that, and I realized that you were on basically one year ago, and I, I was looking at my notes, and I, and I had a question right at the top that I must have asked you first last time, that I think is a really good way to start with you again this time, and that is is if you're one of these fans who's been focusing on NBA and NHL and sure nBA's got a few few more games left, but if you don't really transfer over to baseball until the those championships are given out, what did you miss the first few months of the baseball season? in your opinion, what were the uh what were the important things that those fans missed?
4: Uh, there are a huge number of storylines that everyone missed, some of which are, are no longer relevant, such as uh, you know approval of having changed teams in leagues to the American uh, to the American League and having uh, a remarkable swamp, something that lasted long enough. No one was, people were starting to wonder if he'd ever hit again, but he's been on such a tear that he, he's almost sort of back to normal. Um, I think that the overriding prevailing storylines that 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 do persist are the, the individual pitching performances that we've had. Um, you know, so many no hitters. We've had two perfect games and three no hitters already. Um, you know, one scoring is about the same as last year, uh, which has been, uh, which was down from the year before that, which was down from the year before that. I think we're in year three of this year of the pitcher. Uh, and now it's sort of a trilogy. Uh, we can get George Lucas on the phone to, to produce it, um, but we've got. Um, you powers um primarily in the east. You have the American League the East which every team is at least five hundred, all of whom have a positive run differential. That's you know, so it's five teams where no one else has more than three. Um the National League East has um four teams that are at least five hundred and only the Phillies um, much surprisingly, surprisingly um, are the team that, that falls behind. Uh, they're just sort of reeling from injuries, and they're a team that if you're only a casual baseball fan, you've been accustomed to them winning the division the last five years. They won a World Series in that time, but without Butley, Howard and Al and Halliday for a while, uh, they haven't been the same team. So I think uh, the, the great surprise of this year has been the, the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, even with Matt Kemp making two DLs since. Uh, they, are, uh, they do have the best record in the major leagues, um, although a lot of people, myself included, might say that uh, um, the uh, the Texas Rangers have shown to be the best overall team although the New York Yankees are coming on hot uh, having won 10 straight all against teams with winning records uh, and having double-checked the standings they're actually a uh, half game up uh, uh, no I guess they are still half game behind the Dodgers but I think you have the Yankees and Dodgers on the top of each league
2: yeah you know I think if you looked at the American League standings it wouldn't shock you too much at least those at the top especially since going into the season I think the AL Central is kind of a wide open not really sure maybe leaning towards Detroit but wouldn't be shocked to see Chicago at the top of that but then I think in the National League it's really interesting the maturity of the Nationals for such a young club has it surprised you they've done quite as well as they have? Um, actually, no. I, I disagree with uh,
4: two parts of that. Uh, one, actually, I think, uh, and probably should have mentioned in the opening bit, is that everyone expects the Detroit Tigers to run away with that division. They, you know, they made the LCS right. last year. They added Prince Fielder, so when you have Cabrera and Fielder hitting three, four. You know, you, know, you expect big things. You have still got Verlander there, uh, um, Fister, Scherzer. They seem to have this good rotation, but they're, you know, a couple games under 500. And the White Sox, uh, you know, work throughout the world rebuilding in the offseason. Uh, you know, made some moves to suggest that they weren't really gunning for this year. So I think that's been a, a, a pretty remarkable flip-flop. Uh, where Nationals, everyone kind of saw coming. Yeah, maybe they're a little bit ahead of schedule by being in first place this year. Um, I, I did think one of the, the few predictions that ever amount to anything, I did pick them to be a wild-card team this year. I did think they were ready for a, a playoff run, and certainly Bryce Harper coming up as early as he did and, and being as productive as he's been um, has helped them tremendously.
2: You know, when I look at the National League and I see teams like Washington and the Mets and the Pirates, who we're going to talk a little bit more in a minute about a great PC road for SI, and I think about the long term. Are these teams that can sustain this and contend for the playoffs, or are these teams who are making a nice first half run and ultimately maybe win 80 games but kind of fall short of anything that resembles a playoff spot?
4: I think uh, for the Nationals are a team that probably will sustain uh, the success. The rotation, uh, dramatic upgrades with Edwin Jackson uh, and especially Gio Gonzalez in the offseason. Uh, they have Strasburg and Jordan Zimmerman, who are you know, young and emerging. Um, you know, Strasburg gets all the hype, and, and rightfully so. And i the ace of that staff, but Zimmerman's you know, Zimmerman's not so far behind him. Uh, and it's just a really deep, hard throwing rotation uh, that has been uh, among the game's best this year. Um, the Mets are the team that uh, there, there seems to be a little bit of smoke and nerves involved here. Um, we're not, uh, I can't profess to say how I know how they're in second place in their division right now. Um, they've, uh, their bullpen has not been very good. Um, certainly Ari Dickey's been one of the most uh, um, transcendent stories of this first half. He just threw consecutive complete game one hitters. Um, but, uh, you know, one starting pitcher shouldn't make that much of a difference by himself. Um just, David Wright's having a great year, but the rest of the offense is sort of helping out in bits and pieces. Um, so I don't see the Mets being a serious plus contender the rest of the way. Um, but they're they're certainly uh, have already exceeded uh, expectations. Many people thought they'd be um, uh, a pretty obvious last place team, but they uh, clearly are are better than that. And I think Terry Collins deserves some credit for um, the way he's managed that team.
2: You know, you mentioned Dickey. It- I mean, he makes. Me, I want to know where uh, Pablo Astori is. It's like the insanity of the summer here with Dickie. <laughs> Um, Yeah, I guess so.
4: Uh, he's um, he's a knuckleballer who's you know, somehow seems to tame it in a way. He throws. His knuckleball is a lot different than what we're used to with Tim Wakefield. He throws it about ten miles an hour harder. Sometimes it gets up to about eighty. Um, uh, or at least in the upper 70s, uh, but he just, he, he doesn't walk many people. I think he's actually among the New York Mets starters. I think he has the lowest walk rate, which is staggering for a guy. When, you know, so many of us are used to, uh, you know, seeing, you know, whichever Red Tuck, uh catcher, not Jason Veritek, uh, was was catching Wakefield because Veritek wanted to be part of it. Right. Uh, they'd always, you know, be among the league leaders and pass balls. And you, you think of what Bob Uecker said about catching a knuckleball. The, the, the best way to, to catch a knuckleball is to wait till it stops rolling and then pick it up. <laughs> Um, but uh but Dickie's done uh, really well. Um and, and uh he's eleven and one. I mean he leads the majors and wins. Um I and mean, he and then though Josh Hamilton arranged just cooled off the fact that he had, you know, a four home run game and I think it was an eight or nine home run week. Um I think those are among the, the great storylines uh that uh,
0: an average fan just tuning in now will have missed.
2: Well, you wrote about the Pirates this week in the magazine. You you specifically focused on Andrew McCutcheon, one of the great, one of many really exciting young players in Major League Baseball right now. And the Pirates, they don't hit much, that's for sure. Um, But their pitching is pretty good, and they've put together a really nice first half, and they got people dreaming of a playoff game in PNC Park, which is an absolutely beautiful place and deserves to host one someday. How close do you think they are to making the dream of the Pirates in the playoffs, or even the Pirates in over 500, a reality? Um, Well, they were over 500
4: uh, and in first place at the end of July last year, um, and then just completely fell off a cliff in the second half. So we have to to be cautious with uh, predictions of uh, of the Pirates this year. Um, I, I do think... They're clearly moving in the right direction. Um, although the, the offense you mentioned, uh, I believe they've scored the, the fewest runs in the major leagues, and I think they have the, the lowest on base percentage. Uh, you know, McCutcheon's having this uh, you know All Star season. I think he's gone from being a player touted as a rising star or a young star to simply being a star. We no longer need that qualifying adjective anymore. Um, but the, the the players around him, um, other than um, you know, a little bit from Neil Walker, Rob Barajas, um, and, and recently Pedro Alvarez. But he hasn't gotten a lot of help, and I think the, the, the talent is there, um, to, they don't, the Pirates have, have, with AJ Burnett and Eric Godard, is, the, the veteran acquisition, and as long as they stay healthy, the, the pitching staff, um, led James McDonald, has been very good. They don't need a ton of offense, but they certainly need more than they're getting, uh, in order to make a realistic run. Um, at the, at the rate they're going, I'd be surprised if, uh, to make the playoffs this year, uh, with that, that, uh, Nothing. That streak of nineteen losing
2: seasons um, is certainly possible. What? What kind of uh, being around McCutcheon to do that piece? What kind of a? Uh, I mean, he's a guy who's in Pittsburgh, and I think people are just starting to learn about him. I, I remember the first year or two he's in the league. I, my perception was he's a guy who hits a lot of triples. You know, he he runs really fast, and he. But, and I read your piece, and and there's a lot more. But is this a guy who can be a cornerstone of a cornerstone of a franchise? Is this a guy that they can, I, I know that they've paid him already and they, they've bought out arbitration and things like that, but is is this a guy who can be a, a, a top player in an organization and carry the Pirates into the 21st century here?
1: Uh, he
4: absolutely can. Uh, and as you alluded to, they gave him a, a six-year contract in the uh, Uh, during spring training, which uh, will keep him around uh, into his early 30s. Uh, He's in his fourth year, but he's only 25. I mean, you know, people talk about 27 being the the standard peak year of a baseball player. So he's still two years away from that. Uh, And for now, you know, he's hitting 325. His OPS is over 920. He's got 11 homers and 13 steals. Um, I think you're right that when he came up, he was sort of a, a triple sitter, but he's growing into more of that power. He's got an impressive... Uh, quick hands, uh, so even though he's not a big guy, he's able to generate a good amount of power. Uh, he's blazing fast, covers a lot of ground in center field. Um, and the teams are, are, you know, as, uh, as home runs and runs are down a little bit, there's even more emphasis on up-the-middle players. You always know, hear teams and general managers talking about how solid they are up-the-middle, and you know, catcher, shortstop and center field especially, but also second base. Those are the positions you really want to stock with athletic guys um, who can play good defense, and McCutcheon can do that. Uh, and, you know, the offense you get, um, you know, you, you certainly want, if, if one of those guys can be a middle-of-the-order hitter, again, like Percussion, he's been batting third form and producing about as well as uh, almost anyone uh, in the league, certainly not Joey Votto uh, standards right now, but, you know, he's certainly in the top five or ten hitters uh, in the National League to this point of the season. Um, I think that's the, the kind of guy you dream over and do want to build around. And uh, he's uh, very respectful, smart, um, you know, guy who's uh, serious about his craft and I think, and, you know, it's pretty contagious um, and I think he's the kind of guy that could even draw players to Pittsburgh uh, if, uh, now that he's sort of staked his claim and saying, hey, I'm going to be here, this is a team that I believe in and I want to stay here for the next six years you know, come the off offseason, maybe that'll make a difference
2: The Sports Guest are here with Joe Lemire from Sports Illustrated, you can follow him on Twitter at SI underscore Joe Lemire You know, I don't it seems like every week when I pick up the magazine, there's another great profile on another great young player I can't remember a time in the league and maybe you can correct me where there has been this much really good young talent people that I think of trout in um in in LA I think of Kemp there and I think of Harper and I think of Hosmer although he hasn't had his best year and we could go on and on and on with all these uh the catcher for the Giants, all these like young players in Major League Baseball who it seems like the superstars that are going to carry this league the next five years, it seems like they're kind of percolating and getting ready to rise up and it seems like they're even better at a younger age than the superstars before them.
4: Yeah, it's hard to say uh, if we um, without doing a, a big statistical study whether uh, there is more production at a younger age, but it certainly seems that way. I think you know the teams are getting smarter uh, and spending more resources on drafting. Um, so they're identifying the the, the best talent uh, with, a, I think, a better rate. Um, I think uh, the, the player development is getting a lot of attention. I think guys, um, you know, particularly with with pitchers, there have been um, a, a lot of advances with you know pitch counts and, and those sorts of things to monitor mm-hmm. guys and build up arm strength. And we're still seeing a lot of injuries. But I think guys who do have major injuries are more likely to come back and. and continue to compete at a, a very high level um and, and i think with with, with hitters uh, i don't know if this is a post-testing era sort of uh, uh situation where you know there aren't as many guys and hanging on in their you know mid to late 30s and so they're just there are more opportunities for younger players um, that's just conjecture um but uh you know maybe um maybe this generation just uh you know Baseball won a few battles with football and basketball, and some some great athletes decided to play baseball. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating question, and uh, I, I don't uh, profess to know the answer.
2: Yeah, it's it's exciting, though. There's no doubt about that. I mean, and I didn't even I mean, mention pitchers. I didn't even mention Strasburg. I mean, Jay Hay in Atlanta. And Atlanta's a team I kind of want to ask you about. They've been real up and down. I mean, they look like, at times, they look like the best team in the National League. At times, they look like the worst team in the National League. And It doesn't look like they're going to get very good news from Beachy uh, with an elbow injury and possibly facing Tommy John. Is this a team? Where do you see the Braves? I mean, are they going to end up being a 500 team that has a good streak and a bad streak? Is this a team that can contend all year? Because that's what we maybe thought they were. Obviously, they'd love to see the Yankees go away and never come back. But where do you see the Braves? Um,
1: The Braves
2: are are tough to peg uh, you know two years ago they made the playoffs last year they
4: came within the game uh, of making it only uh you know missing out on that last day the dramatic last day of the season um that they have seemed to have this wealth of good young pitching uh, many were surprised that they didn't trade maybe one or two of those pieces to improve the offense a little bit um but then they go out and right now they have the fourth most run in the national league so Whereas, you know, with Beachy being hurt and uh, a few other other guys, you know, uh, not performing up to uh, their expectations, you know, they're certainly glad they have all this pitching. Um, I I don't see them being uh, a team that's going to, you know, get comfortable and win the division and and do so running away. But I think they are uh, sort of that stealth team that's going to continue working around. I mean, um, they still have uh, a terrific bullpen with Kimbrel and. Uh, you know Venters have struggled a little bit thus far but uh, they've got a, a great back of the pen um, they're getting enough offense from guys like Uggloff and Freddie Freeman another good young player Michael Bourne, having a great uh, contract year uh, as their center fielder and leadoff hitter um, I, I think um, they're not going to blow anybody out but they're going to pitch well enough to stay in it um, they're going to be a probably a team that ends up around that 85 win mark and might have a, an outside shot at the, the second wild card, but they're sure they're not going going away anywhere.
2: All right, the sports guests are finishing up here with Joe Lemire from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. Again, you can find him at SI underscore Joe Lemire. Kind of the last thing here, you're at Fenway Park, getting ready to watch uh, the Red Sox and the Marlins tonight. And you know the Red Sox, 33-33, and 33, 500. They're starting to get the feel that they are a 500 team. Started really rocky. There was rumors like within the first week of the season that Bobby Valentine might lose his job. Uh, What sense do you get? You know, I know you're not inside yet, but I mean, just when you're talking about the Red Sox, 33 and 33 and 500 just doesn't seem to fly these last 15 years here with that organization. Uh, Where do you think they stand, and and what kind of second half do they need going forward if Bobby V is going to continue? At that job, or do you think that they're more committed to him than people lead on?
1: Yeah,
4: I, I do think they're they are more committed than than, um, than than fans might expect. But I mean, as you mentioned, uh, I've only just arrived. Uh, we'll we'll right. sort of see what I, I can find out. Um, but uh, I do think um, this is a team that it's sort of surprising that they don't have a, a better record. I mean, they have a, a plus twenty seven run differential at the moment. Um, they. Uh, They've uh, withstood some some injuries, um, uh, particularly in the outfield. They've used the most outfielders and the most outfield combinations, you know, by a good margin over anyone. Adrian Gonzalez isn't hitting like Adrian Gonzalez can. Um, you know, the same can be said over the, for the past few weeks about Dustin Pedroia. Um, I, I think um, they uh once they get everyone healthy, and you know, who knows when Albert and Crawford will indeed make their returns. Um, you know, they could be a really scary team in the second half. Um, they just have to, you know, do a fair a little bit better than they have in order to, to stay in that in that uh, in that division. I mean, it's just you know now that Baltimore um, seems to have arrived as well. I mean, there's no uh, there's no let up. You just have five you know really good baseball teams um, and uh, the, the Red Sox uh, could certainly use a healthy Josh Beckett. Another one of their guys on the disabled list. Uh, it just seems like and the medical staff is certainly earning their keep trying to, to trying to work uh, work on getting this roster out on the field. Um, it's hard to say which way this team is headed. And you know, after, again, uh, much like the Braves having such a, a horrible collapse the last year, you know, nothing would surprise me anymore, of uh, not with this franchise.
2: All right, Joe, uh, we're going to be reading this summer. Uh, love the pizza on McCutcheon. Looking forward to some stuff. Anything you can tip us off on that's coming up? Uh,
4: no, the, the McCutcheon was, was a big project. Got a, a few others percolating, but none are close enough to being published to uh, – wetting anyone's appetite, but uh, I appreciate the interest, and uh,
2: thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, we have Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. Thank you to Joe Lemire for joining us from Fenway Park in Boston. Talking baseball. Next week, I think we're talking baseball with Jeff Passon. Don't quote me, but I'm about 90% (laughs) sure of that. Uh, You heard the music, and – well, I don't know. It was in April sometime. I think we broke out. April 24th. So it's oh, been about two okay. months. Yep. About too much since we did uh, our mock draft version 1.0 round one. Uh, we're going to do version 2.0 today. And the reason, I guess, is for a little bit of a cheap cross promotion here. Yeah. Um, we've mentioned many times on what we now call the Sportscasters Proper that we have a second podcast which airs at Football Nation. And it had its One of its best weeks last week, thanks to an interview we did with Ian Rappaport, and part of my list has been influenced by things that we learned in that interview. But this week on our Football Nation podcast, we're lucky enough to have Michael Fabiano, who's the fantasy football editor for NFL.com and the NFL Network. And you'll be able to hear that sometime Wednesday into Thursday. You can find it at www.footballnation.com. For more information, you can follow us on at sports underscore casters or them at FBallNation on Twitter. Uh, But Michael Fabiano is going to join us, and we're going to do all kinds of cool fantasy football shit on that show. So we figured as sort of a cross-promotion, it'd be a great time to update our mock drafts. Before we can update them, it'd be fair to mention where we were at in April. This was my top 12 or first round plus one in April. I had Arian Foster first, LaShawn McCoy second, Ray Rice third, Aaron Rodgers fourth, Kelvin Johnson fifth, Drew B sixth, Tom Brady seventh, Maurice Jones drew eighth, Ryan Matthews ninth, Matt Forte tenth, DeMarco Murray eleventh, Cam Newton twelve, and thirteen, which we're going to do because if you have the twelfth pick, you probably have it's the thirteenth pick, pick right. at all. So you're really making that pick in tandem, and at the time I had Jamal Charles. All right, my top thirteen Back in April were Aaron Rodgers,
3: Arian Foster, Ray Rice, LaShawn McCoy, Calvin Johnson, Drew Brees, MJD, Matt Forte, Tom Brady, Andre Johnson, Matthew Stafford, Rob Gronkowski, and Ryan Matthews, were 12 and 13.
2: Okay, so let's do it like this. Don, give me your top three picks for your round one mock draft version 2.0. All
3: right, my draft hasn't changed too much, but I think maybe I was a little bit too bullish on quarterbacks back then and i'm not one to pick quarterbacks early so i think i kind of settled down a little bit my first three picks are arian foster ray rice and Lashawn mccoy uh which just same position it was my two three four and now it's my one two three
2: all right my one two three hasn't changed i'm going to stick with arian foster one i'm going to stick with Lashawn mccoy two and ray rice three don and i are slightly off on mccoy and rice I just think it's because I've owned McCoy and have a familiarity with him <laughs> yeah. and haven't owned Rice, don't have that same familiarity. I just And I think when you're talking about margins as slim as that, you make decisions based on sure. really small things like that. I've had McCoy. I've had success with him. I'm comfortable with him, so I'd like to draft him second. I've never had Rice on a team before, so that's why he's third, but... We're splitting eight hairs there. Right. I think any of those top three running backs... You know what? Maybe I might want to draft three third. and just take the third yeah, guy. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Right now... Because it's not a big
3: difference, I don't think. If I was in a draft, I think the position I'd want would be three. Let um, may me just go four through six now? Mm-hmm. All right, my four through six. My four pick is Calvin Johnson. Uh, I think he's a clear-cut number one receiver. My fifth is Aaron Rodgers. That's finally where I have him go. And my sixth is MJD. And I think there's a... Look, I say this every year, and I'm sure everybody does, and he's probably always under-drafted, but I think there's a pretty significant drop from McCoy to MJD, and after that, the running backs get real fuzzy. So I think like that first three is like tier one. I think MJD's kind of in a tier of his own, and then there's guys with a lot of question marks. So I'd be comfortable taking an MJD there at six.
2: All right. Uh, still no change for me. I'm going to go Aaron Rodgers, four, Calvin Johnson, five, and Drew Brees, six.
3: Yeah, I... I My next three are Drew Brees, Matt Forte, and Tom Brady. The only change there is I think I swapped MJD and Drew Brees. I don't know why. I think it's just a preference of running back over quarterback. Both of them have kind of contract situations that are up in the air a little bit that you hope both of them are resolved by then. I suppose Forte has contract issues too. So he's a weird guy. If Forte... If we do this in another two months and Forte's still not signed, then I'm more scared probably of Forte than any of those other guys because I just feel like their teams have been better to them than Forte's team has been to him, and he's been very public about
2: problems with this team. Forte scares me the most of any back in terms of holdouts. Right, but
3: if he signs, which I guess I'm being positive still being in June, I, I think he's got a lot of value there. He might be more valuable than MJD at that point, but I guess that's debatable.
2: All right, my number seven is Maurice Jones-Drew. I'm with Don. I, I think the top three backs are Foster, McCoy, and Rice. Then I think there's a drop-off to Jones-Drew, and then I think there's another drop-off to my number eight, nine, and ten. Actually, I have running backs the rest of the way. Uh, my number eight running back is Ryan Matthews of the Chargers. Uh, I, love, I love his upside. And my number nine is DeMarco Murray of the Cowboys.
3: Yeah, he's an interesting guy because if you look at Mox, he's he's all over the place. I don't know if I gave my ninth pick there. Did I say Tom Brady? I don't know if you did or not. Okay. Brady was my ninth there, so it was Breeze, Forte, Brady. Uh, my, number tenth pick, my number 10 pick is my biggest increase of any player, and that's Ryan Matthews. I, I think maybe it was a little bit of an oversight on my part that he wasn't higher. I think in my last draft I had him at 13, so he only really went up three slots, but i i think he's just too safe and he's a guy that i believe is going to be the man there especially with tolbert gone and uh it's a, it should be a decent offense still my number 11 pick is andre johnson he drops a slot for my first draft but i still i mean if he's if you told me at the draft he's going to miss two games this year i would still take him at 11 i guess it's just that fear that he's going to have some big nasty injury again i just think he's that skilled and that offense is that good And my number 12-13 slash pick is still Rob Gronkowski. And I'm going to loop around and draft Larry Fitzgerald. In my first draft, I had Rob Gronkowski with Ryan Matthews, which I would obviously prefer. But if I can take the number one tight end and get a guy that has
2: number one or close to it wide receiver potential, I'd I'd be happy with that. Well, this is where we kind of take a different path. And I I think that this is what makes – Fantasy football really interesting this year because I think there's probably a pool of about twenty guys that maybe even twenty four guys that could go in round one. Sure. I think if you do three leagues, I think you're gonna have a couple guys that are in, in each draft that are in a round one that aren't. Uh my number ten is Matt Forte. I'm scared but I'm not that scared and if I have the tenth pick and he's there, I'm I'm drafting oh, yeah. him. Uh my number eleven pick is Trent Richardson. He moves in to my uh, into my mock for the first time I think When you get into this area in terms of backs There's a lot of question marks And I guess I really debated Trent Richardson and Andre Johnson in that Spot but I don't know I, I just feel like you get a chance to have an, a, a guy who's going to be Matt Get Matt Forte like carries In an offense Sure. Uh, my number 12 Shock the world is Adrian Peterson And my number 13 is Darren McFadden As a combo there I think if you're going to take Peterson, maybe you, you you better back him up with the back just in case Peterson doesn't work out. Here's, here's why I put Peterson in. I know what, he's like 44 on ESPN or something like that. That's crazy. He's never going to last that long. We had Ian Rappaport on our Football Nation show last week. He talked to us about how Peterson is a month and a half ahead of Wes Welker's schedule. Wes Welker is probably the poster boy of coming back after an ACL. Of course, he's not a running back. Uh, He's a wide receiver. But I've been seeing Adrian Peterson do things I didn't think were possible since he was 18 years old and was a freshman at Oklahoma. I think he's a freak of nature. And if he's already winning races with one of the fastest human beings in the world up a hill, why can't this guy rush for 100 yards and a touchdown in week one? And if... He's not ready for week one, but he's ready for week three, and he's going to be healthy the rest of the way. Well, so what if he misses the first couple of weeks? Right, Most yeah, that's running kind backs going to miss on, a couple ru- weeks on, anyway. Right.
3: So now that's what's interesting with a pick like Trent Richardson, okay, Trent Richardson and ESPN is the 33rd pick in their first mock. They did their mock on June 16th, so just a couple of days ago. Uh, you already mentioned Peterson was number 44, which I agree is too
2: high, especially with guys like Roy Halew. You're just never going to get him at 44. You, right. could, you could dream of it, but Saint, it's not going to happen.
3: St. Trent, Richards, Trent Richardson in their mocks stays around 33 because with him it's not an injury worry. I think it's more just he's got a terrible team around him. Like If he was drafted by the Patriots, Trent Richardson would probably be a first-rounder, right? Right. I mean, he'd be he'd be a really high pick in most mocks. My question to you would be, if he stays at 33 in most drafts, do you like him that much that you would take him in the first, or if you know he'll be there in the second, which some people still might think is a reach, would you right. wait on a guy like Peterson? Would you wait on a guy like Trent Richardson? Yeah,
2: I think they're going to be really hard to draft because you're going to, if you want those two players, you're going to have to balance when you need to pick them if you want them.
3: Well, that's why I think I have Gronkowski like at at twelve. I mean, ESPN in their mock, I think Matthew Barry took him at fourteen, but Matthew Barry is very, very bullish, very high on Rob Gronkowski. Maybe people in your draft aren't as high on tight ends, and maybe he would go in the third round. So yeah. maybe for me to take him in the first is a huge reach, but, I mean, it's a guy... You have to
2: know your league. Yeah. You have to know your point system. I think depth of the league is really important. You know, I think Rob Gronkowski's value in, like, a 16-team that league that we did at Jay Clemens last year is huge, you know, because you get to have a chance to have the best guy by maybe a sizable margin at a position, you know, and where, you know, something like running back's going to be really thin. But, yeah, I think the two hardest players to draft this year are going to be Peterson and Richardson.
3: Yeah, as far as guys that have high upside, there's a confusing guy that we were talking about, and I'm going to bring it up on the other podcast, and hopefully we'll remember to bring it up with uh,
2: Fabiano. Michael
3: Fabiano, is Chris Johnson. And this is not the first time I've seen him go in the first round of a mock draft, but ESPN has him at number eight overall, their fifth running back off the board. And they say uh, – You can make a decent argument for the next 15 or so names to be selected after Chris Johnson, who was the sixth running back, taken. Well, those 15 running backs, I might like bet. Like, Ryan Matthews went after him. Matt Forte went after him. Darren McFadden after.
2: ESPN had Michael Vick number one last year, and sometimes I wonder if they do stuff to be different.
3: I I just – it would be an interesting question for Fabiano. Maybe I should have checked out – their mock, if they have, any I can tell you yet. this,
2: Don. I'm not picking Chris Johnson in the first round. That's what I. He's don't, not going to be on my team, so I, I didn't put him on my list. I
3: don't understand the automatic love for him again this year. Uh, I guess he's the only guy there, but I just need to see it. I mean, if you pick number, if you pick five or four and get Aaron Rodgers, I don't remember where he was on your list. Four. Would you take Chris Johnson as your number one running back in the second round? Or would you Depends still rather have last, a guy like?
2: Give me another option. Marshawn Lynch. I might take him over Lynch. I
3: think I would too, but Darren McFadden was drafted right before Lynch in their mock. I and would... all Charles was all the way in the third round because of probably his ACL right. scare. But I'd rather have the upside of Charles, I think. I don't know. It It's a real interesting year because of injuries, because of poor performances by people last year, because of – like I think Marshawn Lynch is going to get overdrafted because he was the man in Seattle, but he's just – I don't think he's the man. I don't think you want Marshawn Lynch as your number one running back.
2: Well – I think this was fun, and I don't think there's any reason not to do round two next week, so let's plan on that. All right. Uh, I think we did the same thing last time we did this. We had fun doing round one, and there was still a bunch of players, a lot of names that we wanted to talk about more, so we'll do round two, version two of our mock draft next week. Uh, Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Ed Sherman. Our next guest is from Chicago, Illinois, and is a graduate of the University of Illinois. He spent 27 years at the Chicago Tribune, covering the 85 Bears, working the White Sox beat, and covering golf. He spent his last 11 years at the Tribune working the sports media beat. He has co-authored two books, hosts a sports radio show that focuses on golf, and has a new sports media website called The Sherman Report. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Ed Sherman. How are you doing today, Ed?
1: Well, thank you very much. Appreciate the introduction.
2: Yeah, we're excited to have you on. You know, it's not often, actually, it might be a first. I think that someone had
1: heard of us before we had heard of them. <laughs> so, well, uh, you know, I've just kind of been going around trying to, you know, since I started this site in April and just trying to see what's out there. And I came across your site and in your podcast and uh, saw the um, list of guests that you've had. Uh, A lot of people that intrigue me that I look up to, such as Frank Deford and and Jane Levy, Um, and uh, you know, and uh, so I figured it's pretty good. uh, You got a pretty good thing going, and uh, I've got it on my
2: uh, on my iPad right now. All right, well, let's start with the site because I mean, it's you're 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 kind of an old school newspaper guy, you know. Obviously, 27 Mm -hmm. years at the Chicago Tribune. And you've kind of turned to the dark side, maybe, you know, the new media, you're you're out there on the net and, and the site. What are kind of some of the goals
1: you have for the site? Is it well, that it wasn't, I wasn't, you know, actually when I left the Tribune in 2008, I started, I, I did a Queen's Chicago business, um, fairly prominent sport uh, business um uh, publication in Chicago uh, picked me up, and, and I wrote a sports business blog for them for three years. So, so I have been doing. So, you know, I, I have been on the internet for you know going on almost four years now since I left the Tribune. So that part of it wasn't different. The difference is that this I decided it was time. I just wanted to do something different uh, on my own, so to speak, and um, started looking out there and just trying to see what uh, what was available. What's what was what was out there and what um where maybe i can fit in and i i really enjoyed doing sports media um for 12 years at the tribune and then i continued to do parts of it at cranes and i just thought you know it'd be, maybe this would be fun let's see if what i can you know dig up and see what i cre- could create here so i just jumped in and i don't know exactly how i'm going to get out uh you know mm-hmm. if i'm going to be able to make this pull off of so you know but thus far i'm enjoying it you know, you, like I
2: said in the intro, you did a lot of different things at the Tribune. You know, so you very easily could have started a Chicago Bears blog or a White Sox blog. What was it about the sports media beat that kind of drew
1: you back to that? Well, I mean, the, the, the natural thing and something that I had done, done, and I still I still write a lot of golf. I still do work for various publications, including some stuff with Cranes, and uh, that would have been a natural thing for me to start my own golf blog. But there's a you know there's thousands of them and i'm not on the tour anymore i was on a covered golf for 12 years i'm not out there every week and uh, and i you know, i feel like why would someone want to read my views on the tour when you could read cbs sportsline or golf you know golf world or guys who were actually out there and so um so i looked at other places and i just thought that you know there's an opening maybe the, i mean it, sports media definitely gets covered and there's different outlets that do it but uh, I just thought maybe I could bring my own unique take uh, on sports media, and I'm also the one thing I, I noticed that doesn't get done as much as um, as when, you know as when there were newspaper guys covering the beat is that people actually talked to uh, interviewed members of the sport media, and um, a few outlets do it, but I thought that that was something I could bring to the table if there's something going on. I can get some reaction and if, and uh I like doing interviews and profiles and and uh, that's what I've done thus far.
2: You know what let, let's do a golf thing real quick. I was kind of interesting I was kind of interested to see on Twitter how many people seemed kind of frustrated with Johnny Miller and yeah. some of the comments that he made in the coverage was an NBC major this this week, you know, as opposed to ABC or or C B S who have their own, you know, unique things about their coverage. Uh, When it is NBC and it is Johnny Miller, kind of what are your thoughts about what he does? You know, it's interesting.
1: I think that, you know, and I think there's something that's going on. It's not only Johnny Miller, but you see it in somebody like Tim McCarver or somebody like Dick Vitale. You know, at the beginning, everyone loves them. They're new. These are these fresh voices. They're different kind of voices. And then, but these guys have been doing it forever. You know, and you look at McCarver or Dick Vitale, you're talking about 25, 30 years. Miller's now over 20 years, I believe. And I don't know, maybe there's a little fatigue in hearing some of the same things, same comments uh, over and over. Maybe people, you know, get, you know, there's a shelf life, maybe there's a weariness. And some people, not all, I don't want to say that everyone, I I still enjoy Johnny Miller, and I think he's still one of those guys that, you know, that I tune in to to watch a broadcast. But there's certainly some people who feel like, you know, that. maybe i have gotten tired of some of the things that he said or that he says it you know the same maybe he says the same thing too much or maybe they feel like he's a little bit of a know-it-all it's just interesting to see how it how with the dynamic there's an arc to this thing and it definitely kind of for those guys who've been around for a long time maybe there at some level there's a fatigue that sets in for some people not all um, and uh... right now, I would you know, if you're talking on the other end, you know, the flavor of the month right now seems to be Jeff Van Gundy, who's doing a great job. New voice of right. NBA does a great job. Will say anything, you know, and uh... you know what? So you know, he's kind of like at the start where those guys were about you know twenty, twenty five years ago.
2: Maybe the ultimate example of what you're saying is Billy Packer.
1: You know, a guy again, who, yeah, you know, a guy who basically I mean, exactly off, that's yeah. I mean, how great what everyone loved Billy Packer when he first came on? And then when he left, it was like, okay, you know, a lot of people were like, okay, don't let the door hit you on the way out, Billy. You know, then people had gotten tired of that, of of whatever they get tired of, you know. Uh, the guy definitely knew basketball, but I think a lot of people thought he, at the end, thought he was too much of a know-it-all. And I think it, uh, it you know, again, CBS then decided it was time to make a move. I don't think Billy Packer necessarily wanted to go. But, you know, you, you get to a point where, there, it's just an. I've noticed it. It's an interesting phenomenon, and maybe it kind of says a little something about our nature and how we always want something new. It's like athletes. We're always we always love the next greatest player. That's who we talk about: Strasburg or Bryce Harper, you know, or someone like that. And we don't want to, you know, necessarily Albert Puholt, well He's you know Derek Jeter. He's yesterday. We want who's the next guy coming up. And I think there's some of that that also goes on in broadcasting.
2: Kind of the the biggest sports media story right now is the nbc news interview with sandusky and you've been doing a good job uh covering it on your blog maybe you want to just kind of give us an outline of exactly what happened for well it's it's,
1: you know and i think that i don't know about you but did did you know that there was more to that interview than what aired that night on and and with brian williams no no I, i had no idea yeah i didn't either and all of a sudden we learned that there was that there was that 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 what aired on that night was eight minutes, and there was really more than twenty minutes. That between Bob Costas and Jerry Sandusky, and there was a couple, you know, quotes in there, you know, that were very could have been, you know, would have been very inflammatory. They got, you know, left on the cutting room floor, and uh, you know this came out that when the prosecution found out about this, and now it's come out, and um, and it's just interesting. You kind of wonder, okay, why did NBC A not run the you know, interview in its entirety, and B, why did they cut out this, you know, this one quote, especially a couple of these quotes that were pretty, you know, significant. They were pretty eye-opening when he talks about, you know, uh, talks about the one quote about where he talks about the kids and how he wasn't seeking sexual favors from every kid he right. met. I mean Yeah, and I didn't I mean, go. How around. do you how do you cut that quote out? I'm like, whoa, you know, anything that what he says in that regard. So okay, so in their defense. You know, you'd say, "Well, you know, the interview just happened like minutes before the show went on, and they had a, you know, they had to act really quickly." Okay, fine, but okay. So then you give them past there, but why won't you run that in its entirety? You know, and they have other platforms. You mean right. to tell me Websites, that you want to, apps. you know, on MS, msnbc dot com? It's an all news, twenty four hour channel. What about their website? I mean, that had to be out there somewhere so people can see it. You know, Steve, you would have you went to, watched and that night considering it was like a week after it happened or maybe less than a week after all this thing stuff went down. You want to spend 20 minutes watching a full interview with Bob Costas talking to this guy? Uh, no, I think I, I would have. Yeah, I know I most people would have, right?
2: That, that was the first time I'd ever heard of the show Rock Center. You know what I mean? Right. And, and they, had, they have an iPad app, which probably would have been the perfect place to put that.
1: Anywhere. They you have know. all sorts of platforms. Yeah. In this day and age, there's no such thing as time constraints. Right. You get all sorts of platforms to run this thing on. They have a, a twenty-four, you know, twenty-four hour news network. Twenty minutes of that. This was the big. I mean, this is arguably one of the biggest interview gets in in years. I mean, this is a guy. This guy was the biggest story in 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 not just in sports anywhere. You get he's a defendant. I mean, how rare do you ever get a guy who's charged with a crime to give an interview like this? Right. And then you had him for twenty minutes, but you only heard eight. And there's plenty of, I mean, that's why I've been kind of questioning, you know, NBC, and I have yet, it's, what's it, you know, I have yet to hear back from them today. I have yet to really see a definitive quote why they didn't do this. Maybe they're hoping it goes away. And I'll be surprised that now this is, when we're talking right now, there hasn't been as much of a firestorm about this as as you would expect. Um, I think there should be more, you know, I think that the, it's a, uh, this was a huge, I think this was a huge blunder by NBC that could have easily been avoided and I kind of want to know why we didn't get to see this interview in its entirety because this was a very important interview, and it's a matter of a, of a historical record, so to speak. Uh-huh. You know, so anyway, that's, my, you know, that's what I've been writing about today, and I'm kind of curious to see where it goes from here.
2: Other thing that has kind of been big the last week or so, and that's the whole David Stern and Jim Rome thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I listened to it, and i got to say, I don't know what your opinion is, but I don't think Jim Rome did anything wrong.
1: Well, okay, so I here's and I I kind of initially I thought that David Stern was I think they were both wrong. Initially I kind of came down and uh, you know against Jim Rome and for David Stern, I think that Jim Rohn's question was horribly phrased. I mean, you know, he basically said, you know, uh, is there a is there a conspiracy or whatever? Is there a conspiracy theory in this? Lo- is the lottery fixed? I think that was yeah, the question. Is yeah, the lottery fixed? Yep. Well, you know, I mean, come on, there's, there's better ways to ask that question. I mean, you're the commissioner of the NBA. What's he supposed to say? Yes, you know. I mean, that question's been asked a million times. You, you So you ask it in a way, if you want to address it, hey, people are talking about this. What do you think of the perception? You know, that just won't go away. And then you kind of get into it that way. But for him to just kind of sum out and come out and say, you know, you like a good conspiracy theory as much as anyone else, is the lottery fixed? I mean, that's a pretty loaded question you know it kind of implies that you believe that there's a chance that it is fixed and i think that's the way stern took it and i think he was taken aback by someone like rome asking him the question like that because he's done a lot of stuff with rome and they had a relationship and and i think that um you know stern was kind of that it kind of maybe it Push the hot button because I think he'd had to ask the question earlier in the day and he's had enough of it. He reacted poorly. He went over the top. Uh, I think he could have handled that much better considering a man of his stature and ex- years of experience. Um, so I think at the en- in the end, they were both wrong, but it was, you know, it's not uh, every day where you hear a commissioner of a sports league ask a radio host, do you, you want to hang up on me now? I mean, that was just an incredible moment. I don't think we'll ever hear that again, you know. Yeah. Uh, so um, it was, uh, you know, made for a good story for a few days, and, and uh you know, and it'll pop up again next year when some other team gets the number one pick and we wonder how it happened. Did you get
2: a chance to see the Dream Team documentary on the NBA Network?
1: Yes, I did. And and uh, it was terrific, and I'd also recommend a book that's coming out in hmm. July by Jack McCallum. Um, I got it in my the, hand. The, the Sports Illustrated writer, and I hope you have him on the show because yep, I've also had a July chance 12, to read that book, uh, and, and I got a preview edition it's a great story, and it really, uh, I thought they did a great job. I love those documentaries. I'm just a sucker for those. I would probably watch a documentary like that almost over a game seven of an NBA final. I don't know why, you know, maybe because it's just, you know, the way they tell these stories, because it is great storytelling, and that was a great story. And I, you know, and that NBA uh, TV is going to air that documentary, you know, at least a thousand times between now and the beginning of the basketball season, so people should make a point of finding it and also of getting. Jack's book, *The Dream Team*, and I, you know, hope you have him on the show because Jack did a great job of telling that story. And not only telling the, 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 he had got got into the, the backstory, far deeper into the backstory than you can get in a ninety-minute documentary. And he told great stories just involving himself and what it was like to cover that team. And uh, what it really was, you know, you kind of forget how. You know, I mean, you're not hearing much about the Dream Team now. You know, we don't even know is is LeBron James playing? Is Wade playing? You know, who's playing? Right, but back then, that was a huge, huge um, moment for basketball and also for celebrity and sports and athletes. And uh, that was just a once in a lifetime team. And it was a, it was just a great story. And again, I, I highly recommend Jack's book.
2: Yeah, and uh, Jack's book is the book club book of the month for July. And Jack will join us on July 10th, I believe, is the date to talk more about that Um, the sports guests are here with Ed Sherman uh, spent 27 years in Chicago, Chicago Tribune, you can find him on Twitter, at Sherman underscore report, and his blog is www.shermanreport.com before we let you go just, we kind of mentioned the McCollum book, and you mentioned we had had DeFord on, who had a fantastic book and um, every month we feature a different book in the sports media, and it not necessarily about sports media, but you know, a book in the sports section of the bookstore. You know, we've done the ESPN book by James Andrew Miller. We've done uh, Frank DeFord's book, John Smoltz, uh, Michael Holley, a bunch of different authors. And I just wonder where you think the sports book genre is right now in terms of, uh, you know, do you think we're in a, a good period? Uh, do you think we're in a down period? Yeah, well, I hope yet? it's a good
1: period. I mean, because I'm, I'm hoping to do some sports books. I'm actually... In, a, in involved in a project that's going to be a while so you can have me on in a couple of years on kind of the myth and the legend of the Babe Ruth called Shot Home Run that happened here in, the, in the Chicago Wrigley <laughs> Field and so I think it's an interesting time you know for sports books uh, I think you know it's interesting to, to see that so much of the that people love to go back and see these historical time you know the historical moments I'm just I'm finishing a book now by Chris Ballard uh, oh I loved it you know, I can't mm-hmm. not mind my blanking out, you know, about a, a baseball team in Macon, Illinois, um, Forever Team or something, I think the name of one the title. One Shot I'm at sorry, Forever. Chris, if I one shot at Huh? One Shot at Forever is
2: the name of the book. One
1: Shot at Forever, yeah. right. And, you know, again, this is about a baseball team in a small town in, in Illinois that took place in the early 70s. I mean, theoretically, you should not be able to go to a publisher and say, yeah, that's a book I want to do. But Chris did such a great job writing it that uh, it really makes a a unique story. So I think it's an you know, the book business is very challenging and I've known talked to a number of people. I had an interview on my site last week with John Feinstein who's only the greatest the best selling sports book author of all time and he was lamenting how how his the fees the fees are going down and uh it's tougher to write books and he's doing other things that maybe necessarily he wouldn't wouldn't be his first choice to do because he loves to write books. So it's a challenging time and yet we still see you know, there's still a large collection of books out there, and I hope that it continues because I'd like to contribute a few before I'm done.
2: Uh, our Sports, our Book Club Book of the Month, Book of the Year was Sweetness, which by Jeff Perlman, which was a really hot topic in Illinois, in Chicago specifically. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts on the book?
1: Well, it's interesting because I covered one of them as an early. As an early reporter at the Tribune, I covered that 85 team. I was the number two guy. It was the first time they put a number two guy on the Bears. And so I was 25 years old, you know, talk about being at the right place at the right time. So I was there for that whole entire season. And, uh, you know, and I got to kind of look at, you know, see Walter up close just for that one year. But uh, he was a very unusual man, very quirky man, <coughs> extremely quirky. Um, and uh, you know, and a lot of different faces to him. And I really thought that Jeff did a good job. Um, you know, I think it was unfortunate that the in Chicago and and that the um, SI did the excerpts the way they did, and they kind of chose some of the racier things because the, you know Walter Payton didn't have a smooth personal life, and he had a lot of facets to him. And I think he had some demons, and those were played up in the in the in the excerpts. And I think it kind of did a disservice. To people that you know, who um, to to Jeff, that uh, that people just thought it, that this was a, a slash and burn type book, which w- it wasn't. It was part of a very long and and extensively researched book about Peyton, and um, you know. So I think that if people read it, they kind of got the full picture of the guy, and uh, you know. And I th- and I imagine that um, and if people didn't. You know, want, didn't want to see their hero tarnished. They didn't. Uh, they didn't read it. But uh, Jeff did a great job with it, and it really, I admire the way, the depth of the reporting was just amazing, and and the, and the you know, and the stories that he got, about Peyton really was, uh, you know, really was a great piece of work that he did.
2: You know, both of us are are interested in sports books, and I think. I can't wait to see what Joe Biznanski comes up with in his book that's <laughs>
1: simply called Paterno. I mean, yeah, I think at- that that's going to be, you know, I mean, uh, you know, unless Joe misspells every word, I don't see how that's not going to be the sports book of the year. I mean, that's Man. just an unbelievable story. For people who don't know, Joe was at Sports Illustrated. He moved to State College yep. last year to theoretically to spend a year researching this book and the life story of Joe Paterno, and then all of a sudden it just took, you know, it was going to be, you know, a very I'd say more of a, a who is this guy?" celebratory book. I mean, you know, and then all of a sudden it, took, it takes this amazing turn, and in the hands of someone like, you know, Joe, who's an extremely gifted writer and reporter, it's going to be fascinating to see what kind of, you know, what he comes up with, because I yeah. think he's still going to tell the story about Paterno, you know, but that last chapter of his life is just, you know, it became the first, became the first chat, you know, it became the, the, the ultimate, uh, you know, it just didn't end well for Joe Paterno. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how Joe kind of encapsulates everything, encapsulates everything that happened. And I think he had a lot more access than anybody who was there. And again, so you're going to see some of that inside stuff that hasn't been reported.
2: Last thing, we'll let you go on this. Let's say we have you on uh, six months from now. Where do you want the Sherman report to be?
1: You know, I just hope. You know, I think, like anyone else, you you want your stuff to be read, and I, you know. And I hope that people will kind of, hey, this guy's got something to say. I think one of the reasons, again, why I did this was because uh, the you know, tele sports on television, especially on television, is exploding. People are the ratings have never been higher. Right. Every week, and that. Um, you write about something that's that's new. You know, you write about the, the all-time high ratings for everything, and so I'm if people are watching, you know, people are uh, interested in the people in 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 what goes into these broadcasts, the business behind these broadcasts, because this is where the money is being made. This is where the big money is comes from in sports is is uh, is media rights, and uh, so I'm hoping people will look for me, my site, to be entertained and to kind of to learn. And, uh, you know, just to see what's going on in a very changing and interesting uh, dynamic that we see in sports media right now.
2: Okay, the website is www.ShermanReport.com. You can find it on Twitter at Sherman underscore Report. Uh, Thank you very much for doing this. We look forward to doing it again in the future.
1: Anytime. Give me a call. Thanks.
2: All right, we have to thank Ed Sherman for making his debut on the Sportscasters. also want to thank Alan Shipnuck and Joe Lemire. bunch of business before we get into a uh, special edition of Pick 4 today. Don't forget you can find us at on Facebook, www.facebook.com, slash the Sportscasters. You can also find us, two blogs, thesportscasters.blogspot.com, sportscasters.tumblr.com. Also find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters. You can email us, whether it's about the book club or... Anything really, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out our other podcast at www.footballnation.com. This week we have Michael Fabiano on the show. Last week we had Ian Rapaport. Uh, you can also find that podcast on iTunes as this one, but you can, you can also find this one on Stitcher Radio, kind of all over. If you're looking for more information about us or the podcast, go to our website, www.sports casters.com. We had a great week, pick four last week. Uh, we both won the game of the week, game two of the NBA Finals, Heat over the Thunder, 100-96. to uh, I had Spain over Ireland with my host choice, won that one 4-0. Uh, Don had game three of the NBA Finals, Heat over the Thunder. He got that one 98-85. Now, our winning pitcher of the week, we both had Matt Kane over the Astros. He won 10 nothing and pitched a perfect game. And if you've read the rules of pick four, you know that if the winning pitcher of the week Pitch is a perfect game. You get two points. So Don and I both went 4-1 and one with our only loss being no one in our foursome. Webb Simpson? Was Webb Simpson. Oh, yeah. Was not in our foursome. We're, we're not good at the golf. So we didn't, we didn't catch a point there. It makes me 53-45 and 45 on the year and Don 48-52. and 52. We're going to do things differently today instead of our normal uh, format. What we're going to do. Pick seven. We're going to pick the seven main awards that will be given out at the NHL Awards on Thursday night. I believe it airs at 7 o'clock on the NBC Sports Network with the new episode of Castus Now afterwards. It's good hockey week then. you got the awards yeah, Thursday, the, the draft, draft on Friday, Friday. And Saturday. Yep. And then uh, next week we'll be getting, at this time, we'll be preparing for what will be a free July agency 1st, to start yep. on July 1st. All right, so uh, why don't we build to the Vesna and Hart, save those for last. The way this is going to work, Don and I will each pick a winner. If the guy wins the award, we get a point. If he doesn't, we lo- We it's a loss. Sure. All right. All right. We'll start then. Like with,
3: uh, we'll go with the Selkie, the Michael Pecco Once Upon a Time Award. I Give think in to the best defensive, defensive forward. forward. Right. I think this one is one of the few. I mean, there's some tough decisions here. I think this one's one of the easier ones. I want to say Patrice Bergeron. Uh, is Should be a slam dunk here. Highest plus minus of the guys in the category. It is a plus minus award, typically. The and other
2: finalists are Pavel Datsuk and uh, Backus, David Backus. David Backus, yeah. yeah.
3: And he wasn't too far behind on the points, and he was plus 15 higher than the next closest guy who was Datsuk. So I'm going to take Bergeron.
2: I 100% agree. I think this was the easiest one to pick, uh, Bergeron. The Bergeron's had this trophy wrapped up for a while now. Uh, I think he's one of those guys that, canadian media love too in the sense that he you know is like the guy that makes the canadian national teams despite not being a big goal scorer. big goal scorer. Yeah, yeah. uh i think he's got this one I-, I thought this was the easiest one to pick all right the lady bing which is always kind of a
3: hard trophy to pick it almost seems like it's for gentlemanly play. yeah gentlemanly play the uh, the nominees were brian campbell jordan Eberle, and matt molson i got to go even with his minus nine. I don't know really what the uh, (laughs) other than the low. I I think it's guys that tend to have the most points with the fewest penalty minutes basically boils down to it. I'm going to go with a little bit of a homer pick and say Brian Campbell. I base that mostly on the fact that he played well and exhibited gentlemanly conduct while leading his team to the playoffs, and the other two guys were not even close. So I'm going to take Brian
2: Campbell there. I wouldn't be surprised if we picked the seven exact same guys here, but <laughs> hopefully that doesn't happen. But I'm going to pick Brian Campbell as well. Again, it just seems like he's been linked to this award since the finalists came out. I just can't see a lot of people voting for Matt Molson. No. I think he's going to finish third. Would it shock me if Eberly wins? I guess not. But a great
3: season plus on a bad team. But
2: I think he's going to have another day to win this award. It just kind of seems like this is Brian Campbell's year to win it. So I'm going to go with Brian Campbell as well.
3: All right, the next award I guess I'll go with is the Calder. That's for the Rookie of the Year. This, I think, is one of the hardest to pick. Uh, When we did the midseason, I think we picked some of these in the midseason. I think I picked Adam Henrique. He kind of cooled off. He's still in the conversation. The nominees are Adam Henrique, Gabriel Landeskog from uh, the Colorado Avalanche, and Ryan Nugent Hopkins of the Oilers. I went with Ryan Nugent Hopkins, okay, mostly based on the fact that he was injured for a lot of the season and still put up better numbers than the other two guys, or real comparable numbers. His plus-minus wasn't as good as theirs, but his fifty-two points ties Landeskog. And had he more was assists. the first
2: pick. He's
3: kind of he's got like he's the guy that in the preseason everyone would have picked for this award, right? So they got that in their head already. And given, I wish I had his numbers in front of me. I don't know how many games he played, but I know it wasn't nearly. 82, and he still put up a really impressive number. So maybe if they based it on what could have been, or how he performed in the few games he did, I think he was the most impressive.
2: Obviously, Henrique did some great stuff in the, the playoffs, playoffs, but yeah. that doesn't count here. I don't think Henrik's going to win it. I could see Landis Gog or Nugent Hopkins win it. I'm going to take Landis Gog. I think that he... Had a really good push towards the end of the season. He was scoring big goals. He Had a great game against the Sabers. Yeah, he maybe maybe scored the game winning goal in a game that the Sabers basically cut them out of the playoffs. Yeah. Potentially, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take Landeskog and say that he won it in the stretch. Nugent Hopkins played only 62 games this year, so he was almost
3: a pointing Well, I shouldn't say that. He has 52 points in 62 games. He was. Ten shy of a point of play, point of game player.
2: Won't shock me if the Nuge wins it, but I'm going to say that Landeskog edged him out with big goals at the end of the season. The Jack Adams Award goes to
3: the NHL Coach of the Year, and this year the nominees are uh, Ken Hitchcock,
2: McLean, McLean, and Tortorella. McLean
3: yep. of the St. Louis Blues. No, that's Ken Hitchcock. McLean of the Florida. Ottawa Senators. Oh, Ottawa. Yeah, Florida looks like. I thought their coach would be in for this one, but uh, didn't get nominated. I went with Ken Hitchcock, I guess, mostly based on... I mean, him and Tortorella both had 109 points. Paul McClain had a team that snuck into the playoffs. They had a good showing there, but that doesn't doesn't come into play in this. But a team of 92 points doesn't impress me. Uh, I went with the team I thought had the less skill on paper, because to me, I guess that... Shows a little more coaching, if that makes sense. So I went with Ken Hitchcock for this one.
2: Yeah, this was hard for me. I debated back and forth between Tortorella and Hitchcock. Both teams had a look at the
3: uh, President's Trophy trophy all year long. Yeah,
2: I mean, I went back and forth, back and forth. I'm going to go with Hitchcock, too. I think that Tortorella rubs some people the wrong way. Sure, that that doesn't help you. know, And that might cost them votes. And when it's such a slim margin, you're looking for a reason to pick one over the other. I think Hitchcock is a really likable guy. So I went with Hitchcock. Plus, he turned the team around. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, they they he 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 turned that team around. So, I'll we, go with Hitchcock. Too. We should give out the Rocket Richard trophy too. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure who will win it.
3: Um, okay. For the big 3, I suppose, the let's go with the Norris here. That's the defenseman of the year. This is always a tough one to pick because it's always people have always kind of said that there should be two trophies, the best defenseman and the best offensive defenseman. So in this year, we'll really show how they vote for it. Um, The nominees this year are Zidane Chara, Eric Carlson, and Shea Weber. Chara and Weber are always in the conversation for this. Carlson's a young kid that really ran away with the defensive scoring title with 78 points. I'm going to go with the fact that I think that they're going to keep going with the most offensive player, and I'm going to give it to Eric Carlson. He had... 16 more points than Chara. It was still a plus 16 on a team that wasn't very good. Um, I don't think Weber has
2: a shot at this. No, His I numbers
3: aren't better than Chara I really think or it's Carlson. down to Chara
2: or Carlson. So I really do. I,
3: I went with Carlson, and Carlson was the guy I picked at the midway point because he was running away with the scoring race. So I'm going to take him.
2: I should have said my pick for some of these first because it sounds like I'm copying you. But no, <laughs> I'm, I'm picking Carlson as well. I, I just think that... That's how they give out this award. I really do. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of guys just look for And, and he is so far and away the leader in points from a defense. Yeah,
3: I, Campbell might have been too, and he has 53 points. And if that's the case, Carlson had 25 more points than him. So nobody was close.
2: That's a ton. I, I, I,
3: I think the year he
2: had offensively just can't be
3: ignored, and he's going to win the Norris. And he might arguably be more valuable to his team this year, even though Boston had a much, much better year than Ottawa did. Maybe without Carlson, Ottawa doesn't even make the playoffs.
2: I'm just really surprised Lidstrom is going to win it. Yeah, they almost
3: should just give it to him.
2: <laughs> uh, Seems like they did it last year.
3: Yeah, that's true. Uh, the Vesna Trophy goes to the best goaltender, and I don't think there's a big discussion here. Pecker Renee, I think gets crossed off immediately because his numbers aren't close to Henrik Lundqvist and Jonathan Quick. Those two have almost identical goals against the average and save percentage. I think Lundqvist is a little better in both of those. Uh, Quick, I think, had more shutouts. But I think when it comes down to it, Lundquist just had a better record. I think when they're that close, his record being the best of all these goalies is what's going to put him over quick. And uh, I I think that should be a pretty easy pick. The only thing they're going to have to do is it's a regular season award. They're going to have to put out of their mind what Quick did in the playoffs.
2: I think they do vote before the playoffs. Oh, they do? Yeah, I think they do. So they don't have to worry about that. But, yeah, I mean, quick, obviously, if it was given out now. Would would win it. Would win it, but it's not, and I agree that Renning is not in the discussion, and I agree that, look, it, we're going to end up having the same guys for probably the Vezina and the Hart, but I, I just think that they're they're obvious. Yeah. I think Lundqvist, it's his year to win the Vezina. I mean, he got a cover of Sports Illustrated. He was featured on Real Sports. He plays in New York. He's had a great season. He's the king. He's going to win this award. Do you want to do the heart first and all it off? Sure, <laughs> first. Uh, I have Malkin for the heart. Um, if nominees are Lundqvist and Stamkos, right? Stamkos and Lundqvist are the others. Look at Malkin led a Penguins team to an incredible season without Crosby most yeah. of the year, and Malkin's the best in the season last year. He was the best player in the world, and uh, sometimes this award goes to the best player in the world. Uh, his numbers are there. His intangibles are there. What he meant to his team is there. Uh, I don't believe in goalies winning this award, even though I was pretty pumped when hashk did it a couple times. I don't think Longquist is going to win it. And Stamquist scored a ton of goals, but his team didn't even make the playoffs. Right, that's what I was going to say. So the, why wouldn't it be Malkin?
3: The wording on NHL.com here under the Hart Memorial Trophy category is the Hart Memorial Trophy is an annual award given to the player judged to be the most valuable to his team if steven Stamkos isn't on his team they still miss the playoffs right i mean right. so i think you immediately cross Stamkos off great year it's almost unbelievable that they had a guy score 60 goals and miss the playoffs just shows how bad their goaltending was right but really it's between longquist and malkin and you, when you talk value to your team if you take malkin off that team i don't think they come close to the playoffs that team would have burnt out uh, he carried him for a long time. I'm surprised their coach wasn't in the discussion for Coach of the Year. Yeah, he's
2: really good. He could be in the discussion every year. I think that's why he wasn't. And I also gave it to Malkin. So does that mean the only one we were different on is Calder? Calder, yes. All right, well, so um, be it. Yeah, I, guess it I, wonder, I wonder if it's that we're just see hockey through the same eyes or if it's this year. The- it seems
3: like with a lot of these – you could immediately cross off one guy. So right off the bat, there was a 50-50 shot, and then you just apply a little bit of logic to it. And then maybe Brian Campbell's a homer pick a, a little bit right. for both of us. But other than that, I, I don't know.
2: But again, is, is not Molson going to win that award? No, right? So it's Campbell or Aberly, Right. Yeah, so. Well, we'll see how we do. I mean, I guess we're right, either we going to do well or then. we're going to burn out here because we have basically the same. One of us could go 7-0. and oh, The other one can't if, you know. <laughs> because rookie of the year someone's right. going to get a, one of us is going to get a loss but
3: we could have picked the tougher ones but like those would be some of those awards are basically guesses like you're talking about the Bill Masterson award that's kind of like the National Hockey League player who best exemplifies the qualities of perseverance sportsmanship and dedication to hockey that's tough it's more strangely worded than the Lady Bing so Yeah, I mean, at that point and, and the just, Mark
2: Messier leadership award and things like that I just didn't think that they were relevant no, right. enough i think those are just things to make the show a little bit longer (laughs) yeah but speaking of long shows that's probably it for today i want to thank our guests again alan shipnick joe Lemire, ed sherman we should be back next week with rob mish and jeff passan and we're going to track somebody down to talk hockey free agency with plus uh round two of our version 2.0 mock draft don you can cue the hip All right.